Psalm 119, 49 to 56. Remember the word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. The arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from your law. I have remembered your ordinances from of old, O Lord, and comfort myself. Burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. O Lord, I remember your name in the night and keep your law. This has become mine, that I observe your precepts. Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that you'll grant to us more and hunger and thirst for righteousness by this word of righteousness. May this prayer of David be our prayer too. And may we be transformed because you work in us and you change us and you make us more into the image of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. In this section, at the beginning, David calls on God to remember the word to his servant which he has spoken. And it was this word that made him hope. In this first verse, in verse 49, David again is calling upon God to act in accordance with what he has said. He's calling on God to remember the words that he has said in the past because those words that God has spoken in the past have become the source and foundation of his hope. David's hope is in the word of God and his desire is for God to act according to what he has said. This is the way that we all should be as believers in Christ. We should know what God has said and then call upon God to answer His promises, to fulfill His promises, to do according to what He has said. And this is our only hope, in which you have made me hope. In David's case, David is only possessing the law of Moses and the books of Joshua and Judges and perhaps a a little more like the book of Job. He has only these books. And he's saying, based on these books of the Old Testament, the book of Moses, the law of Moses primarily, based on that, you have made many promises. You have given me much hope. You have told me about my redemption and the future and what the future holds. So I want to know more of what these books teach. Of course, we also know that he wrote the Psalms. So in his lifetime, to this extent, to the point, this point in his life, he's putting his hope in whatever words of the Psalms that God has revealed to him. This is what we should do. We have to recover this desire to know what the Bible says and know what the Psalms say and even know what the early parts of the Bible say Because this is where David put his hope. In fact, in a sense, Paul is citing this kind of passage in Romans 15.4. He says, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Whatever was written in earlier times. By the time of Paul, he's talking about all of the Old Testament. He's saying that the the Old Testament was written for our encouragement, that we might have hope. 
And the means of all of this is through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures. Perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures. We must know what it says in order to call upon God to help us and to fulfill His promises toward us. We have to do so in this way. So read the Bible. Read the Bible from cover to cover. Even the parts of the Bible that are hard to understand and that do not appeal to us. Read, 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 study, study, study. Ask, 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 meditate, meditate, meditate. Call on God to give you comprehension and understanding and find resources that will help you understand those portions of the scriptures so that we can say, Lord, remember what you said in your word and help me in my time of need and help me to have hope, hope in my circumstances, hope in my afflictions so that I persevere through life's trials, I persevere through persecutions, I persevere through uncertainties because I have put my hope in your word. And all of this, of course, is founded on Christ and in Christ. Romans chapter 8. The whole chapter is full of hope and comfort for those who belong to Christ because they have the Spirit of Christ and nothing will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are the kinds of words of hope we must be acquainted with. Notice too in verse 49... He calls himself your servant or God's servant. The NASB says servant. In many places in the Old Testament, this word servant is better translated slave. Better translated slave. And in the New Testament, the primary word for slave is, the, is a Greek word that many times it is translated slave, but should even more in many cases, in the New Testament, be translated as a slave. We are the slaves of God. We are the slaves of righteousness. We have to look at our Christian life that way. Yes, it's true in Romans chapter 8 and in John chapter 15 that we're not considered slaves in a sense. Jesus said in John 15, 15, I no longer call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. I call you friends. And all things that the Father has declared to me, I declare to you. In that sense, we're no longer slaves. We're no longer slaves in the sense that we used to not know the will of God. But now we do know the will of God. And now that we do know the will of God, God considers us friends in terms of a metaphor. He considers us friends in that sense. We are adopted into the family of God. We are His children, Romans 8. And we're also friends, according to John 15. And He does not look at us or consider us slaves in that sense. However, we are slaves in the sense that we must obey our Heavenly Master. Even the New Testament expects us to consider ourselves slaves of God or slaves of Christ. Therefore, we must obey our heavenly master. For example, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon or material possessions and wealth. You, you cannot serve two masters. You have one master or the other. 
Whether you admit it or not, you are serving one master or another, whether you acknowledge it or not. Colossians 4, verse 1. Colossians 4, verse 1. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Here he's speaking of those who have masters and uh, those who are uh, masters and they have slaves in a literal sense. And he's telling these masters who own slaves, you better watch out how you treat your slaves. Treat them with justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Human slaves have a heavenly master and human masters have a heavenly master who is Christ himself. Jude verse 4. Jude verse 4. Jude says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ, by practicing licentiousness by practicing libertarianism, freedom, Christian freedom in a wrong sense that justifies their wicked behavior so that they don't obey Christ as their Lord and their Master. Therefore, when David is calling himself the servant or more properly the slave of God, he means it in that sense. I don't belong to myself anymore. I've been redeemed. My Lord and Master has redeemed me. He's purchased me by His blood. So I must do His will. Whatever He says, it doesn't matter. Small or great, I will do His will. Whatever it is, whether it is secret or open, whatever it is, I will do His will. And later when He speaks of doing it in the night, verse 55, whether it's in the dark or in the daytime, I will do your will. It doesn't matter. I will follow you. We have to regard ourselves this way. We cannot say, I will only give God a part of my life. I will only give God a part of my time. I will only give God a part of my resources. I will only give God a part of my values. Yes, I'll change my values a little here, a little there, but not fully. We cannot do that. We belong to Him, and since we are His slaves, we must obey Him and seek His will. Know His will and then do His will. Verse 50, verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. He, like all of us, we go through afflictions, various kinds of hardships and turmoils in life. We all experience them. Sometimes it's because of our own sin. Sometimes it's because of the sins of others. Sometimes it's because of the circumstances. Sometimes it's natural events, natural calamities. We have afflictions. We have afflictions, but what are we supposed to do when we are afflicted? When we are afflicted, we ought not to run here or there. We ought not to be scattered in our thoughts and actions. We ought not to seek ungodly sources to help us through our afflictions. We should not go to unbelieving and wicked people and consult them and ask them what they think about our spiritual life and condition. We ought not to indulge in... Uh, in uh, material things such as drugs, alcohol, sex, and anything else that would give us temporary satisfaction 
to help us overcome our afflictions. Nothing like that to overcome affliction. What does he do? He identifies it. This is my comfort. This is my comfort in my affliction. When I'm afflicted, where do I find comfort? Verse 50, that your word has revived me. Your word has revived me. The word of God is the place where his hope resides. The word of God is the place where his comfort is derived. He derives it from here. Romans 15, 4. This is what he said. That through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We might have hope. We might have comfort. It's going to be in the word that helps us to overcome. When we read this word, we believe what it says. We trust God's promises. By faith, we trust what he has said about our circumstances. Whatever we experience, this is where we will overcome. This is the way to overcome. This is the way to understand. This is the way to proceed. Only by this word. And if anything we consult or anything we, uh, or anyone we consult or anything we do is contrary to this word, there's no hope. There's no comfort. There's no revival. Verse 50, your word has revived me. Yes, when these afflictions press down upon us, we become sad and gloomy. We become uncertain and anxious. We don't know the future. And in a sense, we are experiencing a death. We're experiencing a kind of death in that we don't have this life. We don't have this zeal. We don't have any enthusiasm. But the word of God is what's going to produce enthusiasm. The word of God is going to produce life. It's going to give us what we need to sustain us and to help us persevere through those trials. The Word of God is where life is. It is called the Word of Life, Moses called it in Deuteronomy 32. It is your life, he said. 52, uh, no, sorry, 51, verse 51. The arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from your law. Now he's speaking of a specific kind of affliction, which is persecution. The arrogant or the proud. The arrogant, proud people who are content and smug in their own beliefs. When they see us, they utterly deride us. They ridicule us. They, they turn us into the song of the drunkard. That's what they do. When they look at us, they mock and disdain us. They do it utterly, he says. These people, when they attack the truth, when they see the truth in us, and they attack it, they're not humble people, whatever the world says. They are not humble people, whatever they may say about themselves. They are arrogant people who deserve to be put in place by God. They are proud, they're self-sufficient, and they have no desire for humility, Kindness, concern for others. This is who they are. So let us not mislabel them and say that they're just people who are sincere, they have a good heart, and they just happen to misunderstand Christians. No, that's not what it's about. They are arrogant. If they are deriding us, they are arrogant. We also see here in 51 how intensely they do, uh, they do this derision. This derision is full and complete. He says, they utterly deride me. Often it is the case that unbelievers 
will deride Christians in ways that they would never deride other people. Wicked people, criminals, known perpetrators of evil and crime. They will never speak of those kinds of people in harsh and severe terms, but we who are trying to live righteously, they will utterly deride us. Will they utterly deride evolutionists? No. Will they utterly deride abortionists? No. Will they utterly deride all kinds of sexual deviancy? No. No. They will say, no, you have to express love to them. You have to be gracious to them. You can't use harsh and mean words to describe them and their behavior. You can't do that. But then they will use harsh and mean words to describe us. They utterly deride us. This shows how much that they are completely upside down. They're completely backwards in their thinking. Now, this is the case. And when this is the case with us, we who are seeking to please God, what should we do? What should we do? We may be tempted to sin. We may be tempted to lash back. We may be tempted to return evil for evil. If they punch us in the face, we may be tempted to punch them in the face. If they lash out with a, a wrong word to describe us, we may be tempted to lash out and speak a wrong word or describe them in wrong ways. We might be tempted to do that. But what does David do? Verse 51. Yet I do not turn aside from your law. Yet I do not turn aside from your law. He states that he has been so resolved and determined by the grace of God to do so, he does not turn aside from the law of God. Whatever God says that my behavior should be in that circumstance, that's what my, my behavior will be. If God says not to speak up, I will not speak up. If God says turn the other cheek, I will turn the other cheek. If God says to walk away, I will walk away. If even God says to speak up, I will speak up. Whatever his law requires, he says, I don't turn aside from it. I know what your word says about this or that occasion, this or that circumstance, this or that ridicule. I know what your word says, and I am determined to behave accordingly. Whatever you want me to do, I will not turn aside. Also, turning aside has to do with maintaining the faith. When people deride us, we are easily tempted to think, well, there's so many people deriding us, so many people ridiculing us, they must be right and I must be wrong. So I'm going to turn aside from what the law of God says and I'm going to follow them. Someone has said, it's as though just because we are in the midst of wolves and they are howling, we find that we need to howl like they do. No. Just because we're in the midst of wolves or dogs or pigs, that doesn't mean that we need to behave just like a pig just because we're in the middle of a pigsty. It doesn't mean we have to behave like them. Walk away from them. Turn away from them and do not turn aside from God's law. Follow whatever God's law says. And don't follow them. Resist them instead. Verse 52. 52, I have remembered your ordinances from of old, O Lord, and comfort myself. He remembers God's ordinances. Whatever God has said in the past and whatever fulfillment 
of those words have happened in the past, he remembers them. He remembers the mighty deeds of the Lord. He remembers that God said he would do this or that, and then he did do it. He remembers in order to comfort himself. He remembers in order to comfort himself. That is, how can we know that God will provide for us in the future? How can we know that he will protect us in the future? How can we know that his promises will be fulfilled in the future? Because he's already done so in the past. He remembers the ordinances of God of the past and what he has said, what he has done, and how those things have come true. We have many examples in the Bible. We have many examples of how God provided for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David. He's provided for many, many. This is why these examples are there in the past. These examples of the past are there for us to know that just as God helped His people in the past, He will help us now. Therefore, we can derive comfort from that. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We know from what God has done before that He will do so again. Therefore, we have to know. We have to know what He has done in the past and how He has fulfilled His promises to know that He will do so in the future. Verse 53. 53. Burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Here he's going to describe his anger or indignation and then in 54 his joy. Notice here, both of these are true emotions. Both of these are emotions that are God-given emotions that he uses in the right way. 53. He's not speaking of his sin in 53. He's speaking of a proper indignation. Burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. When he sees that wicked people reject the law of God, he's not tempted to follow them. He has the proper reaction, and that is to resist it. And what happens? Burning anger wells up within him because they do that. He has a proper sense of, of the fact that God hates evil and the people who do their evil. He hates it. Psalm 119 and verse 104 says, From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. I hate every false way. Verse 128 Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. Verse 158. I behold the treacherous and loathe them because they do not keep your law. I behold the treacherous and loathe them because they do not keep your law. And 163. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. This anger that he's describing is the biblical anger that is good and right. Ephesians chapter 4, 426 says, Be angry and do not sin. There is a kind of anger 
that is a legitimate, God-given, good anger. And that's the anger that's against wickedness and the people who perpetrate that wickedness. That's what happens to him. It wells up. We have uh, several examples of this in the Bible. One example is Jesus in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, when he was tempted, when the, the people, his enemies were tempting him to heal a man, it says he was anger, angered at their unbelief and hardness of heart and grieved at their hardness of heart. He was angered at their unbelief and grieved at their hardness of heart. He had both emotions at the same time. He had grief and anger because they had a hard heart since they wanted to tempt him you know, to do something and then accuse him. In Acts chapter 17, Acts 17, 16 till the end, the Apostle Paul is in the city of Athens. He's walking around the city and it says, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. The city of Athens, a Greek city with a pantheon of gods, they have many, many idols and those who manufacture the idols selling the idols right there in the marketplace. He sees idols everywhere and all the people going into the shrines and the temples on the hills. He sees everything. And what happens to him? His spirit is provoked within him when he sees all that wickedness. In those ways, there is righteous and biblical anger. In those ways. And that's good. And that's what David is describing. He's saying, it has seized me because they forsake your law. How could it be that people who should know better, that some things are so self-evident and they should know better, that they don't understand this and they have the audacity to transgress the law of God. They have the audacity to transgress the law of God. Things which are naturally self-evident. Natural law given by God, self-evident. That is, that man does not go with man, but man goes with woman or husband and wife. That, that goes together. And it should not be woman with woman, it should be woman with man. And it should not be man or woman with animals or anything else like that. There are many, many deviations that are self-evident and that when that, those things don't happen, we should have burning indignation that seizes us because of the wicked who forsake your law. They forsake God's natural law and they also forsake God's biblical law. What is written in the Bible, many of these people, they know what the Bible says, it's just that they make excuses to circumvent what the Bible says. They make excuses to just to get around it, to justify their wicked behavior. This kind of stuff should cause us to have burning indignation. Now, rash indignation and that indignation that causes us to sin, that, that kind of indignation or anger is wrong. James chapter 1, James chapter 1, uh, verses 19 to 21. There he explains that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And he says we ought to be slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to hear. Quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So when we are not doing it that way, then it's sinful. Or in Ephesians chapter 4, 426 and 27, when he's talking about there, be angry and yet do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. In that sense, when we let the anger fester and persist, 
then it is going to make us liable to sin, liable to do things that are wrong and contrary to the law of God, then we need to forsake it. We need to confess it. We need to repent of that kind of anger. Verse 54. Now the joy. Verse 54. Your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. Notice a couple of things here. God's statutes or His law. His law or His statutes become songs to David. We know that to be the case literally in terms of the Psalms. But also, when he says statutes or laws, he has to be including the law of Moses. The law of Moses that has ordinances, laws, and statutes. Statutes that are intended for the state to employ for the people to live in law and order, to live in peace and in justice. These statutes are there. So, David, when he looks at the law of God, the statutes of God, he does not look at them as a heavy burden on his life. He doesn't look at them that way. He considers them songs. He makes them into songs. He can, some of them are songs like Deuteronomy chapter 32 or Exodus chapter 15. We have songs there in the law of Moses. But in, well then for him, the whole word of God is like a song to him. He loves to sing the word of God to make them into music and songs for himself. That's the way we should do. We should look at the Word of God that way. The Word of God should not be a heavy and cumbersome burden for us. The Word of God should be a song to us. It ought to produce life in us, produce joy in us, produce this kind of zeal and enthusiasm for the things of God that we want to sing about what is there. We want to sing about what the Word of God says. And how long? And in, in what manner and why do we need to do so? Verse 54. In the house of my pilgrimage. Or in my pilgrim house. In my pilgrim house. I live in this world as a pilgrim. The Bible here calls it pilgrimage. In other places it calls our status here. Aliens, sojourners, foreigners. This is who we are in this world. Aliens, sojourners, foreigners, pilgrims in this world. David looked at himself this way because he put his hope in heaven. He put his hope in eternal things, in things that were forever. Not in things that were transient. Not in things that are here today and gone tomorrow. Not in things that are a mere breath, that dissipate very quickly. Not like that. He was living for the life to come. Therefore, he considered himself a pilgrim or a sojourner. The Bible considers in the New Testament for us to do the same. It's not as though only David was supposed to live for heaven, but we can live for the world. No. 1 Peter chapter 1. Or no, sorry. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Verse 11. I urge you, beloved, as aliens and strangers. 
as aliens and strangers live for that day of visitation, the day of judgment, when all of us will glorify God. We will glorify God because we've been living for God. And others will glorify God because they will acknowledge that God is the righteous and good God of the universe. They will bow their knees. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is uh, Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 it was written for us and for our instruction. For us to see the models of the Old Testament as models and examples for us. Hebrews 11, 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, such as David in Psalm 119, verse 54, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. We know that Abraham could have returned, and he told his servant in Genesis 24, you better not make my son return, my son Isaac return to my previous country. You better not make him return. Make sure you bring a wife from that country to here. I don't want to go back because I'm living here in the hopes that, that Canaan is a model and an example of eternal life. And that's what verse 16 says. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And also, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul tells us how we ought to consider our circumstance. Philippians 3, 3.20. 3.20-21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Just as Romans 8 says that the redemption of our body will be yet future, and we put our hope in that, when this creation will be transformed to a new creation, the Apostle Paul says the same. And with that truth, we consider our citizenship to be in heaven. And just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead. And Jesus said, because I live, you shall live also. And he who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. These are truths of the Bible meant to reiterate the fact that we are pilgrims here and our citizenship is in heaven. So live that way. Live that way. Verse 55. Verse 55. O Lord, I remember your name in the night and keep your law. I remember your name in the night and keep your law. He lives this way as a pilgrim even in the night. In the night. Why does he say in the night? In the night, it is easier not to obey God. In the night, it is harder to obey God. It's harder to obey God because Romans 13, 11 to 14 describes that when people want to commit their sins flagrantly, they usually do it in the night. They do it in the night when they should be sleeping. They want to commit sin. 
They commit sexual sin. They, they get drunk in the night. And they, they go steal from other people, other people's houses. These are the kinds of things that happen in the night. But he says, I remember your name in the night. When it's dark and people can't see me, I know you see me. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. And in Psalm 139, David says, that Even the darkness is not dark to you. Even the darkness is not dark to you. God knows what happens in the night. And he says, O Lord, in the night I remember your name. And what does he do when he remembers the name of God? The name that he is bearing? He's calling himself a believer, a follower of Christ, a Christian, a disciple. He calls himself by the name of God. He identifies himself with the name of God. And he knows that even in the night time, he better not sin against God. So he says, and keep your law. I keep or obey your law. Keeping the law is obeying the law. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. This is what he's saying. Even in the night, my desire, Lord, is to remember you and obey you. Remember you and obey you. This is the way I live as a pilgrim. This is the way I live as your slave. This is the way I live as putting my only hope in you. And 56. Verse 56. This has become mine, that I observe your precepts. In the first phrase, when he says, this has become mine, it's as though he's saying, listen, I'm not a brilliant person in this. I'm not skilled in that. I'm not the strongest in this and that. I'm not the best in the world. It doesn't matter. Anything that I might attribute to myself or anything that people might credit to me and anything that people might use to make me into a great man, a celebrity, this or that, none of that matters. He says, this has become mine. This is the only thing I want. This is the only thing I possess. This is the only thing that is of value to me. That I observe your precepts. I just want to be this humble, obedient slave of you, God. That's all that I want. That's all that I need. That's all that satisfies me. I don't want the praise of men. I don't want anything else. I only want to do your will. And I will have no confidence, no boast, no uh, assurance in anything else except doing your will. Jesus actually taught us to be this way. In Luke 17, in Luke 17, verses 5 to 10. Luke 17, verse 5. And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. They exclaimed, Increase our faith. They really want to know and grow. Verse 6. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. But which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, 
Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself, and serve me until I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Here, the Lord, with this illustration, is trying to promote faith and a humble faith. But how is humble faith produced? Humble faith is produced when we do the will of God in every single way God wants us to do it. And that's all we are concerned about. Just as a slave is. A slave, a good slave, just wants to do whatever his master tells him to do. And he's not looking for notoriety. He's not looking for the praise of men. He's not looking for peace and comfort and ease. He's not looking for any of those things. He just wants to do his master's will. And when he has that attitude, he also needs to be able to say, so you too, verse 10. Verse 10 is the clincher. It's the punchline. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. This is what Jesus wants in us. He wants us to be able to say these kinds of words on the day of judgment. We are unworthy slaves. And Lord, you told me what to do, and this is what I did, and this is all I wanted to do. So that's all. That's all I am. That attitude is what is needed in our Christian life. This has become mine, that I have observed your precepts. That attitude is what we need. Humble faith doing exactly what God wants us to do and having no other concern in life. I just want to please you, Lord. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Our Father, these words, we pray, would be applied to us. We pray that these words, by your spirit of grace and your spirit of power, spirit of knowledge, would give us what we do not have. Lord, we fail in this way many times. We stray to the right or to the left. We add or subtract to your word. We justify our wickedness. We make excuses. Father, we are feeble in these many ways. And Lord, we have transgressed. Forgive us of these transgressions. Give us humility. Give us faith. Give us a desire to please you. May we consider ourselves your slaves. And may it be that we have this singular focus of knowing your word and calling on you to fulfill your word and expecting you to revive us, expecting you to give us hope and comfort no matter what we experience. And may our only satisfaction be that we observe, we do your word. In Christ's name, amen.